good, good morning. Uh, we start with the first panel. I uh, wanted to uh, welcome everybody back to uh, this great event to uh, consider the evolution in this next panel, how we got here, the evolution of antitrust law and the consumer welfare standard and the contributions of, uh, of, of Judge Bork. And we have a great panel to discuss how we got here and where we're going. Uh, with us uh, today, and I'll start uh, from my former colleague from the Justice Department, Professor Elise Dorsey, who is a visiting scholar at the University of Virginia and an adjunct professor at George Mason University's Scalia Law School. She previously served as counsel to the Assistant Attorney General in charge of the Antitrust Division and an attorney advisor to the FTC to FTC Commissioner Noah Phillips. Elise earned her law degree, summa cum laude, from the Scalia Law School and served as law clerk to Judge uh, Grady Jolly of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit. Next uh, is Professor Michael Katz, who is the Sarin Chair Emeritus in Strategy and Leadership at U UC Berkeley's uh, uh, School of Business and also served as the Deputy Assistant Attorney General for Economics at the DOJ's Antitrust Division from September 2001 through January 2003. He directed a staff of approximately 55 economists and oversaw the analysis of economic issues arising in both merger and non-merger enforcement. Dr. Katz holds an AB summa cum laude from Harvard University and a Doctor of Philosophy from Oxford University, both degrees in economics, and one of the most sought after uh, experts in many competition cases uh, in the US and abroad. Uh, last on the panel is uh, my old colleague from his past administration, uh, Professor Bilal Syed, who's most recently the director of the Office, office of Policy Planning at the Federal Trade Commission. Before his service, Bilal was an attorney in private practice representing clients in mergers and non-merger matters before both the FTC and the DOJ and in consumer protection matters before the FTC. Uh, Bilal has taught antitrust law as an adjunct professor at the Scalia Law School at George Mason University and served as an attorney advisor to FTC Chairman Tim Muris. Uh, how we will proceed today, we'll ask each of the panelists for a five to eight minute uh, opening to share with us their views on the topic of today's discussion. And then we'll engage in a, hopefully, a, a heated and, and debate about where we stand today, especially since most recently, both the Wall Street Journal and New York Times seem to be discussing whether or not antitrust is a policy at war with itself or no longer at war. Uh, why don't we start with Elise? All right. Um, is this on? Okay, yes. All right. Um, so thank you so much, Macon, and thank you to the Federalist Society for having me here today. Um, it really is, I think, a really interesting time in antitrust law and poignant almost how much, again, we're having a lot of the same conversations that led to the publication of the antitrust paradox almost 40 years ago. So I thought I would start our discussion today, um, you know, just kind of with some background because the, the publication of the antitrust paradox was really the culmination of decades worth of work, um, which was 
by no small means, um, you know, Judge Bork's contributions here were, you know, tremendous in many ways, but it wasn't just Judge Bork. There was, you know, as he pointed out, um, antitrust was a policy at war with itself, and this was something that had been, um, you know, under the microscope for quite a long time leading up to the publication of the book. So, you know, we go back, you know, to the original inception of the Sherman Act. It's, you know, very broad, very general. It leaves a lot up to the courts to figure out how to make this workable, right? The, the Sherman Act says all restraints of trade, um, anything in restraint of trade, you know, is going to be unlawful. Well, what does that mean? Because anything, you know, anytime you enter into a contract, it's going to restrain trade in some way. So there was really a lot that was left to the courts to make this workable, and they struggle with it for a long time. Um, and looking at the legislative history as they did um, early on, um, and as many have done since, and again, you know, it's one of these, these things we're seeing again today, a lot of um, the same conversations that we had earlier in terms of, okay, so what does the legislative history tell us? Can it tell us anything interesting? And, um, you know, there's that quote that I think it's, was it Justice Alito maybe, um, you know, had said that, you know, looking at legislative history is often like looking out at a crowd and picking from amongst your friends. You can often find whatever you want to in it. And I think the same is true in the Sherman Act, as we've seen, you know, Judge Bork made very strong arguments that the consumer welfare standard is what was intended. Others have made strong arguments that, you know, really antitrust should be sociopolitical. What I think is really more important and more informative is the actual um, history we have and what we've seen from courts and antitrust enforcers trying to actually implement the antitrust laws over the last, um, you know, over 100 years at this point. Um, and what we saw was when they were trying to incorporate all these different sociopolitical goals um, into antitrust enforcement was it really led to a tremendous amount of contradiction, sometimes within the same case, but certainly across cases. And again, this was something that came up, you know, several decades even before the antitrust paradox was published. Um, so in 1966, for example, Justice Stewart, um, you know, is looking at the case law in the Vons grocery case. He finds, you know, the sole consistency he could find in litigation under Section 7 was that the government always wins. Um, and even Milton Hansler, who, you know, was a respected antitrust expert and chief advisor on antitrust matters to FDR, who, you know, is um, when we think of trust busting, we all often think of FDR. Um, he criticized um, antitrust at this time as, you know, an impenetrable jumble of words um, and embarrassing holdings and dicta that no one theory could fully explain, short of regarding the cases as fundamentally opposed to one another. Um, so by the mid, you know, 20th century, um, there's really, you know, antitrust law is really at an inflection point. And so what we're seeing today, which I think, you know, we'll get into um, as we get into, you know, our debate a little bit later on is, you know, we have a lot of hearkening back to almost the golden era of antitrust in the mid 20th century. You know, it was more aggressive. It was going after these sociopolitical goals. But when you're looking at what's actually happening on the ground in the case law, it's a mess. It wasn't a, you know, political or partisan idea that it was a mess either. This was, you know, everyone agreeing that antitrust law fundamentally was not working and, you know, us needing to kind of reevaluate reevaluate, step back, look at first principles. What is it that we want antitrust law to do? What is it that antitrust law actually can accomplish and how to, you know, refocus it and make it workable in the world today? And so some of, you know, what I think is very interesting, again, is, you know, we have a lot of Today, we're having a lot of the same conversations we had a few decades ago. And I guess one of my, my main concerns, and I think we'll get into this as well, um, 
is, you know, when we're, we're talking about, you know, how effective or ineffective antitrust law was in the mid-1950s, 1960s, leading up to the publication of the antitrust paradox, there was, there was a lot of work that went into, you know, kind of figuring out, okay, why isn't antitrust law working and how can we make it work better? And I think some of the calls to just return to the earlier era um, would be really expensive, um, costly for Americans, for the consumers, and across the economy. Um, because what we saw, again, was you know a lot of antitrust not accomplishing even the goals that it was trying to accomplish. It was not um, you know really working for small businesses even. This was something we saw repeatedly in the case law as well. Um, so I think I will stop there for now. Thanks, Lise. It's a, a good background about what, what really uh, generated uh, Judge Bork's views and motivated him uh, to his great work, the antitrust paradox. Uh, Michael, it's off. It's already on. All right. Um, so I'm going to say a little bit, I think, about my sense of where we are now. And this is often my way. I think by the end, I will have insulted everyone. Um, so look, it's, as we all know, as we said, we're in the midst of a great debate about the goals of antitrust policy. And to caricature the two sides of it, right, the left claims that the consumer welfare standard is too narrow and that coupled with economics has led to unduly weak enforcement. On the right, the most extreme claim would be the consumer welfare is the only approach that's consistent with economics and therefore is the only quote unquote scientific approach and moreover, that by using the consumer welfare standard, the courts have been doing a good job of basing decisions on sound economic reasoning. Now, in these polarized times, I think it's good to find common ground. So I want to start by identifying two things that I think the sides have in common. So the first is I think they're both fundamentally incorrect on important aspects of the debate. I think the left mischaracterizes what the consumer welfare standard is, or at least my view what it should be, and also mischaracterizes the role of economics. And on the right, I think they far exaggerate the link between economics, or at least the link between sound economics, and the consumer welfare standard in practice. Second thing they have in common is that both sides routinely make false economic claims and get the facts and logic wrong. And in the, to get some economies of scope, let me talk about one error that both sides make in common. Both the left and the right subscribe to the false claim that a monopolist does not have incentives either to pass through cost savings or engage in innovation. Now, people on the left, a bunch will say, well, of course we say that. It's true. I suspect a lot of people on the right would say, wait, I've never said that. But in fact, it is a, becoming a standard claim on the right as well because it's what underlies the false assertion that's frequently made that if a firm's quality adjusted prices are falling over time, it must not have market power and not be a monopolist. And that actually is the same statement as saying that monopolists don't pass through cost savings or that monopolists don't innovate. Because of course, there are lots of reasons prices can go down, including <laughs> falling costs and innovation. And that's hardly a proof of the absence of market power or being a monopoly. I mean, one way to think about it is suppose IBM, hypothetically, had cartelized the market for personal computers and froze things in 1981. And so suppose we fast forward to today and we say, look, a personal computer is still for around $1,600. You can still get a computer that has a clock speed of just under five megahertz and it has a whopping four kilobytes of memory. 
and it costs the same as it used to. So obviously we don't have market power. Maybe we even lowered the price $100. Well, of course, the fact of the matter is the competitive personal computer industry has evolved so that for that price, you can get a computer with multiple cores and a clock speed's over a thousand times faster, and memory that's literally over a million times greater than what it had. So of course there's been huge technological progress, and had a monopolist just frozen things, that would hardly be proof of a lack of monopoly. Now, having talked about some of the common things, let me move on. I mean, given this, I, this, I think, frequent and persistent mischaracterization of the consumer welfare standard. Let me say a little bit about what it means to me, which I think is largely, I don't think we are going to have much of a debate on a lot of this, is the same as what Elise would say, is that it includes long-run considerations, it includes quality, it includes innovation. Now that said, I do think sometimes both the parties in cases and the courts tend to, may focus, I think, too much on short-run price effects because they are the easiest thing and that doesn't mean they're easy, but the easiest things to predict or determine. But something else I think needs to be taken into account that firms can be consumers. I think there's pretty widespread agreement on that, but I have actually been involved in litigation where the other try side tried to say that even though firms were the purchasers, that's not what, uh, they weren't consumers. I think it's actually far too narrow a reading. I also think, and I know some people think this is left-wing lunacy, but I think it should be interpreted as including trading partner welfare, which is to say that when we talk about the consumer welfare standard, we should also be concerned about the welfare of sellers. Okay, but now let me be clear, though, about what I mean by that. I mean that sellers should be entitled to the benefits of competition on the buyer side. I manifestly and distinctly do not mean that we should be trying to prop up firms in the role of sellers and protect them from competition. I mean they should get the benefits of competition from the other side. Because that's one thing I also think is something of a misconception by a lot of people in this debate, is we don't have a purely welfareist standard Right, whether it's consumer surplus or total surplus, there is a critical element in American antitrust law saying it's harm to consumers brought about by harm to competition. And I think that's critical, and I think that principle, though, readily extends then to saying that sellers should also get the benefits of competition among buyers to be their buyers. And I think it's particularly important because you know, the rise of multi-sided platforms and both in our economy, but also then in antitrust, because the distinction between a consumer and a supplier is often blurred in that. I mean, if you think about media-supported platforms where they're essentially paying in kind to get people to pay attention so they can then sell the product to advertisers, you can think of the viewers or the users as suppliers to that platform. And similarly with credit card network networks, where they may pay cardholders to be on the platform, you can think of cardholders actually as suppliers of services that the platforms ultimately are selling to merchants. So I think it is important to expand it. But as I say, it's critical, I believe, that this notion of harm to competition, and I will say it's sort of in passing, it's unfortunate that we don't have a good general definition of what harm to competition means, given how important it is. I think we are in this thing of sort of People say they know it when they see it. Now, Robert Bork, in fact, did try to define what he meant by competition or harm to competition, and did it in terms of um, harm to consumer welfare. And I think the modern day champion of that is um, Steve Salop, who may 
seem like strange bedfellows, has pushed that there should be a consumer welfare standard. But I tend to agree with the pushback on that, that if we really meant we were going to evaluate practices by the net effects on consumers, that that's just, when you start putting that in the broad context of the overall economy and all the different feedback effects, I think would just create way too much uncertainty. And that's why I think we narrow the focus and look at things like through harm to competition. So let me just mention a couple, a couple of other things. In terms of consistency with economics, I mean, I think a lot of different goals could, in theory, be consistent with economics. Consumer welfare is not the only one. And I think part of it is because a lot of times in the debate, we lose sight of what economics can do versus what economists talk about. So I think what economics is economics does is at least two roles in the policy debate. So one is that, it, that economics can be used to figure out the link between marketplace, um, market participants' conduct and the market outcome. And that should be true whatever you think the goal is, right? And I think that economics in that way should be viewed as technocratic. It says, you know, the firms or consumers behave in a particular way, what is that going to mean for the outcome? And that's what economics does, is it studies market equilibrium. Second thing that economics can do is help inform policymaking in the sense of saying, if you tell me what your goal is, and you tell me what your policies are, or the rule, decision rules you're going to use, I'll help predict whether or not your policy is actually going to satisfy the objectives that you've put forth. But what economics is not doing in either of those roles is telling you what the goals should be. Instead, it's, saying, it's, it's acting as a set of tools to help you figure out sort of, sort of how the world works and then how your policies will influence. So as I say, it doesn't specify what the goals should be. And so I think economics is completely consistent with having a, you know, multiple objectives and socio-political goals. Now, that said, I want to be very clear, I don't think that would be a good thing. I am a supporter of the consumer welfare standard, and I think we should keep it. But there's not an economic theorem that says that. That's really based on you know, practical experience and in the history, as, as Louise pointed out. It's not something that economics itself says should be the case. And where this leads me, I'll, and wrap up is I think that the left is and you know, the neo-Brandesians or the people on sociopolitical are really attacking the wrong things. I think the consumer welfare standard is a good standard. I think trying to protect small businesses or what it, I think would devolve to in the US is protecting the small billionaires from the big billionaires um, would be a, a serious mistake and lead to a lot of unproductive rent seeking. Okay. I also think it'd be a really serious mistake to abandon economics because I think economics does provide the best set of tools we have for linking policies to outcomes and ultimately to whatever your, your measure of social welfare is. And so I think it makes no sense for either side to advocate, and, which has typically come from the left, to abandon economics. Now, that doesn't mean, though, that I believe there's no need ref for reform. I do think there's need for reform. I think that the courts have gotten to a place where they've actually committed, and particularly I mean the circuit courts and the Supreme Court, um, several economic errors, which I think are actually are quite serious and I think are leading to um, bad decisions. And I think that's also true of um, presumptions that the courts have adopted. And I think it's time for a reset. And that's, you know, the law has evolved, as many have observed. Antitrust law is really common law. 
but it's statutory common law, and so there's a role for the legislature to reset when the legislature thinks that the courts are no longer in line with what the at least the current legislature intends. And I think we're at a time where that should be happening. So what I think we should be debating is not abandoning the consumer welfare standard or not. I think we should be debating what would that reset of presumptions look like? Let me be clear, I do not think that the current anti-big tech bills in any way, shape, or form look like what that reset should be. Um, and I think we also need to consider other reforms such as greater use of um, court-appointed experts or having written expert testimony or what they use in Australia and New Zealand, what's known as an expert hot tub, where you put the experts in front of the judge simultaneously and you let them go back and forth and interact. Because I think there's a range of process reforms that we could have that could improve the use of economics in the courtroom. Thank you. Thanks, Michael. The uh, mention of expert hot tub conjures up images that are quite unpleasant. <laughs> okay, you may not want to visualize Yes, it. I do. I cannot imagine uh, how that is. Uh, you mentioned uh, something that is, I think is critical to this debate and, and largely part of the misunderstanding uh, of this unfortunately heatly, uh, heated debate between uh, different political ideologies. But what is, what are the elements? What are the concerns of consumer welfare? Price effects being one, but you mentioned them. I just want for emphasis so, so the rest of the folks can understand that who might be watching this later. So I would say, I mean, it's really the, the, I think the full range, of, I gotta be careful because somebody on the left would say, no, that just shows you're an economist and you have your blinders on. This sort of the full range of effects that, of what occurs in the, um, the sale of the products and, and the consumption of them. So, I mean, it's looking at the, as I like said, the price, it's also looking at the qualities of the products, it's looking at whether um, competition in the market's driving innovation and driving various forms of investment. I guess what it's not doing that some of these people would like is being against concentration for its own sake, you know, being just flat out against it, which people sometimes put forth, you know, for political arguments saying, well, we don't care if the market's doing well in terms of satisfying customer wants and having low quality, you know, low price, high quality products and constantly innovating. We just don't want there to be big firms or we're worried about what's happening to workers. And there I want to distinguish two kinds of effects. Let's suppose there's a merger that's proposed. I think that, the, and not everyone who supports the consumer, consumer welfare standard would agree with me, I think that the consumer welfare standard should protect workers from a merger where the effect of the merger is to lead to a monopsony, right? To lead to a single buyer for the worker services and deny the workers a competitive market for their labor. Now, of course, there'd be a lot you'd have to look at to see whether the merger, in fact, did that, because there may be lots of other potential buyers of the labor. That sort of effect, though, I think can and should be included within the consumer welfare standard. What's a very different effect, which I would not want to include, is to say, no, no, we just care about workers, period. And so if, as a result of the merger, the firm's will combine intellectual property in a way that allows them to be much more efficient and produce more output at lower cost with fewer workers. There are people who would say that's an argument against the merger. And I think, again, this is not something economics proves, but this is my view you know, as an economist and as an old guy who's seen a lot of stuff, that it'd be a really serious mistake to adopt that sort of view 
because you're then basically against technological progress, and that while it might benefit the employees of those merged or non-merged firms, as the case may be, in the short run, overall, I think it have bad effects for the economy and, and for workers overall. So I think, you know, it's in some ways you've got to talk about what it is it doesn't include. And I think it is these notions of, you know, either sort of the political power aspects or certain things where it really is just about certain groups getting, um, you know, getting economic rents or payments as opposed to the outcome of the, the competitive process in the market. Thanks for that. And that clarification is important, partly because the consumer welfare standard is criticized because they're saying it only, it, it only measures price effects, which is just simply not true. Bilal. Okay, so I, uh, I think I'll be much shorter than my, my two panel members, uh, mostly because I think I agree with a lot of what they said, but also I wanted to take a, a slightly different uh, approach and, and, and raise some questions that maybe will come up in, um, in the discussion. You know, uh, most of my time has been spent sort of as a practicing attorney, either in private practice or in effect in the, in the government. And I don't quite uh, know what, what is meant by the consumer welfare standard in practice uh, outside of uh, identifying for the courts or uh, for, for clients or clients identifying for me, you know, sort of the efficiency justification for a practice or a merger. And I think um, that that is really where where the focus um, might uh, uh, might well. This is where I think the debate the debate might be focused on is is how best to identify and measure uh, efficiencies or benefits associated with the transaction or conduct, uh, and then asking uh, as the court did. Uh, in the Microsoft manner, uh, you know how to balance those those effects, uh, uh, positive effects versus any negative effects from the from the conduct or the transaction, and I think this was an area where um, uh, then uh, then Professor Bork and, and then uh, Judge Bork uh, was was sort of deficient, right, and um, that. Uh, you know, it, my recollection and my brief review of the antitrust paradox over the past couple of days suggested that, uh, you know, Judge Bork was very good at identifying efficiency justifications for practices, uh, and thus he was very um, uh, successful in helping overthrow the old order where efficiency justifications were not either considered or sometimes held against um, uh, parties to a matter. Um, but he was not very good uh, at putting forth uh, a framework for balancing uh, those efficiency uh, 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 gains, let's say, against any costs from, from conduct or a transaction. And that's not meant to be a criticism, I think, uh, or a harsh criticism. Uh, I think uh, Bork, more than anyone, was instrumental in um, showing the uh, weaknesses of antitrust law, particularly as it developed, you know, in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, um, but but his failure uh, is the same failure that I think exists today in the agencies and the courts, which is a failure to uh, uh, analyze uh, uh, clearly 
uh, both the uh, benefits of conduct or transactions and, and balance them against potential costs from conduct or you know, exclusionary conduct or mergers that remove a competitor. And I think this is probably where the debate ought to go, uh, not sort of a, a, a more, uh, let's say, obtuse debate over what, you know, what, what is the consumer welfare standard and what's an alternative to it. Uh, the focus ought to be on, you know, measuring uh, benefits and costs of transactions or conduct and figuring out how to uh, evaluate them and balance them. And of course, that's an area where the economists are ahead of the lawyers. Um, uh, but uh, most importantly, they're ahead of uh, the courts. Uh, and this, I think, would be the, the you know, uh, I, I'm, I don't think much of the legislative proposals that have come out of uh, Congress. And I, but I think a, a direction, a clear direction, that the agencies and the courts better evaluate and balance efficiency justifications against costs of, of conduct or transactions would, would be the most useful uh, statutory uh, change that, uh, that could come out of Congress. And this is not meant to suggest, or this should not be viewed as suggesting that, you know, this is pro-defendant you know, or respondent. The courts have failed. The courts have accepted efficiency justifications um, and stopped their analysis, sometimes in Section 7 cases, some, but more so in Section 2 cases, and not done the hard work of evaluating whether the, the efficiency benefits uh, are sufficient, in a sense, uh, to swamp maybe the negative effects of certain transaction or, or exclusionary conduct. and and. And you see that, I think, in the Supreme Courts and maybe the lower courts sort of focus on, you know, concern about false positives uh, that is challenging conduct or arguably a transaction that may be efficient and almost no focus on um, not challenging uh, conduct that, that may have a negative uh, perspective. So uh, I think the direction ought to be uh, harder analysis of benefits and costs, uh, clear direction that the courts and the agencies should do that, uh, and also some direction that um, the point of antitrust, as an example, is not to minimize sort of type one errors, but to minimize the sum of the errors of type one and type two errors. And I think that would help address uh, many of the concerns about under-enforcement without, without expanding uh, the, uh, uh, the factors that the agencies or the courts are supposed to uh, take, take account of. Uh, and those would be relatively simple adjustments to make to the statutes. Uh, and then they would be sort of hard to implement, uh, but implemented through the common law process uh, which I think is, you know, after about 60, 70 years, uh, did start to serve antitrust well. So I'll, I'll stop there. Uh, well, I'll make one other point. Um, and and uh, I, I, I just note that um, some of the attacks on the consumer welfare standard are basically attacks on Robert Bork. 
Uh, and for reasons that maybe we can guess, he's become sort of the boogeyman of antitrust. Uh, now, I, I said just earlier, Bork did, did um, great service and was the most important person in, in a sense, overturning the old order. Uh, but I'd, I'd put a question to everybody here. That's a question somebody put to me, uh, which is, uh, you know, Bork, Bork is important, but um, in practice, who do courts cite? Who do associates and partners uh, uh, look to for guidance? Is it Robert Bork in the antitrust paradox, or is it some version of the Arita Turner Hovenkamp treatise? Uh, and you know, Bill Kovacic and, and others, but Bill in particular, have written significantly on the Chicago School versus the Harvard School, or the Chicago School and the Harvard School approach to antitrust. And um, it, it does seem clear that, that some of these limitations uh, uh, in the sort of generic statement of the consumer welfare standard uh, have, uh, I think, uh, led uh, to the courts focusing more on what came out of sort of the Harvard group, uh, including Stephen Breyer, than uh, Robert Bork in the actual practice of uh, antitrust law. Uh, the only, I'd say, coda to that is um, Bork's opinion in, you know, Rothery, you know, the Van Lines uh, joint venture case uh, was, I think, the um, really the the best Section One opinion up up to that time, uh, and you know, I'd like to see that approach developed. Uh, further with with this greater evaluation of costs and benefits because if you go back to Rother you see Judge Bork identified you know here are the benefits of you know sort of the restrictions but didn't measure them against the potential costs and that's really the to me that the challenge of um, productive uh, antitrust going going forward okay so I'll stop there thank you Bilal I'm going to read two passages uh, from Judge Bork's work that uh, that occurred 20 years between one and from his book, 1978, and then later an op-ed that he wrote that many of the, his critics seem to overlook. Uh, it was an op-ed in 1998 uh, in the New York Times, no less. Uh, so Judge Bork explained uh, that rules uh, at the Times, quote, significantly impaired both, this is the antitrust rules of the Supreme Court, the precedents leading up to the 70s. Well, uh, they significantly impaired both competition and the ability of the economy to produce goods and services efficiently. That was his main focus. Uh, the source of this harm, Judge Bork noted, rested in the lap of the judiciary. He explained that, quote, the Supreme Court, without compulsion by statute, and certainly without adequate explanation, has inhibited or destroyed a broad spectrum of useful business structures and practices. His main focus was to, tr to try to provide the neutral principles of how you look at antitrust law so that you do not lose that efficiency. And his interest, in, uh, I thought what motivated the, his consumer welfare standard was exactly that, more efficiency and the types of business practices that uh, help uh, consumers. Uh, he explained, quote again, the responsibility of the federal courts for the integrity and virtue of law requires that they take consumer welfare 
as the sole value that guides antitrust decisions. The antitru uh, antitrust must employ economic reasoning follows, of course, from the identification of consumer we welfare as the law's sole legitimate goal. Now, he gets criticized that somehow those principles of the consumer welfare standard that Michael laid out and others uh, have inhibits the ability of law enforcement to control some of the concentration of power uh, today. Uh, but 1998, in his op-ed, I'm just gonna take a sentence from that, uh, he's, he writes, quote, there seems to be a widespread impression, and this is around the Microsoft controversy, that the Microsoft uh, controversy should be resolved by an ideological litmus test. Liberals are bent on punishing success and conservatives must defend Bill Gates' company from any application of the antitrust laws. But the question is not one of politics or ideology, it is one of law and economics. And that is why an outspoken free marketer like me can be arguing, uh, can be found arguing against Microsoft. Now, I don't believe, and some would argue, that he was at war with himself in those two, you know, during that period. But I think as you have explained, some folks, and Bilal, you mentioned that, some folks are trying to, I think, identify the problems with today's economy, with a handful of uh, maybe companies that, that have a lot of market power, and try to identify it with Judge Bork, and, and say the problem with antitrust law today is that, and they're trying to change the consumer welfare standard. Is that a fair characterization? Is, did Judge Bork change his views over 20 years, or was he consistent perfectly with his antitrust paradox book? Hello. So I, I think uh, Judge Bork was consistent, you know, in that focus, I think uh, his focus had always been on understanding the efficiency justification uh, for, for conduct. I think uh, in the book and in his prior writings, you know, he minimized the potential harm from what I'll call, you know, exclusionary conduct. Uh, in part, I think, because the courts had not been very good at identifying, you know, uh, actual harm uh, from, from such conduct. Uh, in, in the Microsoft case, you know, I think uh, he went beyond what was in the, in the, in the text of his, of his book and could identify you know, the harm from the exclusionary conduct and basically was suggesting, uh, I think, that, you know, you would, you would balance the harm with, uh, with the efficiency justification or the effects of the efficiency. So in that sense, I think he was very consistent. Uh, and, and in fact, it's sort of the way antitrust, you know, should, should continue to evolve, which is having identified uh, that there were, you know, uh, business, uh, non-market power uh, related justifications for conduct or transactions, uh, we ought then move to evaluating, um, you know, the, the effects of, uh, uh, the, the benefits uh, versus, the, versus the negative effects. So I think in, the, in an actual case uh, where he was, um, you know, had a, had, a, had a client, and I don't, or, or was practicing, uh, you know, he had to do that, uh, just like uh, uh, you know other other lawyers do, and I think he saw that um, you know 
just discussing the efficiency justification for conduct was sort of insufficient when faced with sort of an actual live Section 2 case. Sickle, you were also the chief economist at the Justice Department around the time. I don't know if you had any role in the Microsoft settlement itself, but at the time, at the turn of the millennium, uh, you were there, so, but I, I'm not sure if you were involved with it before or after, but would love to hear your views on that. First, I have to say, actually, I was not involved in it um, at the White House insistence, I am told, but not by, I was not told that by the White House, which did not stop a nationally syndicated journal from claiming I, um, journalists from claiming I was the mastermind behind the whole thing. <laughs> but um, anyway, um, so I, in terms of you know consistency, I, I think a couple of themes come up. First off, you mean the White House directed antitrust enforcement <laughs> at that time or in settlement? Um, Maybe careful when you say that because I was a member was in the Bush administration. Yeah. Um, but anyway. Um, in terms of, but Borg's position, one of the things he also said in that New York Times um, editorial letter, if I remember correctly, is he said, no, I have, you know, this isn't new for me. I have been consistent. 20 years ago, at the time he wrote this, that he had said he thought Lorraine Journal was correctly decided. Um, and so it wasn't that he, you know, never saw an antitrust violation. He said it depended on the case. Now, the one thing you might, be, I hadn't thought about this before, but it's partly because of some Donald was saying about, you know, Bork, though, not coming to grips with how to balance things. But I think in both Lorraine Journal and Microsoft, he didn't see a need to balance because he said what's reason I'm against the um, defendant in both these cases you know, came out is because there was no justification on the other side. There was no balancing to do. And so I think in that sense, it's consistent. And I do share the view that look, I think that Bork did the country tremendous service in a lot of ways in you know, reshaping antitrust, but I also think that he did, didn't do enough to recognize there was this need to balance and that you know, there were, I think he sort of, in some sense, overreacted to the, the state that he was seeing. And it worries me now that we're actually seeing the same thing. We sort of keep going too far back and forth um, each way. Elise? Yeah, I think, you know, I agree. Um, you know, I agree a lot with, you know, what my co-panelist just said and, you know, what, with what Bolal was saying about, you know, Judge Bork being consistent in, you know, wanting to use the economic toolkit that we have and in particular to aim that toolkit at the consumer welfare standard. Um, and I think that's another thing, you know, we're seeing again today, we've talked a lot about the different misconceptions that we're seeing. And one of them, again, is that, you know, if you believe in the consumer welfare standard, that means that you never see an antitrust case that you like. You are always siding with the defendants or the businesses. Um, and I think, again, that's, that's really not the case. It just gives you a better way to actually analyze what's going on, to look at what's actually happening to competition and consumers in the market so that you can, you know, see cases that you do like. And as we continue to deploy this economic toolkit, you know, we've gotten, you know, our it's, gotten better over time, right? We, our ability to assess what the effects are in different cases is certainly better now than it was a few decades ago. As um, you know, Michael said, you know, there's a lot of looking at prices in these cases and that's because it's often the easiest, but that doesn't make it easy. A lot of, you know, what you see in these cases is, you know, courts and agencies struggling because a lot of the times 
Um, you know, these are hard questions, the, the cases that we see the agency struggling with, in, in particular, the cases that actually get to court, um, you know, are the ones that are kind of tend to be the most difficult. And that's why they're at court. That's why, you know, the parties haven't already entered into a settlement. Um, and I think that's one of the things, you know, kind of again in this in this debate, there's a bit of a disconnect, I think, between what actually kind of happens on the ground at the agencies and, you know, the public perception of what's happening, because so much of the work happens before you even get to the courts. And so the courts are seeing a small sliver. And so if you're even just trying to look at the cases today, you might think there's a disproportionate um, emphasis at the agencies on price and short term price effects in particular. Um, but having you know had the benefit of being able to work at both the DOJ and the FTC over the last several years, that was certainly not my experience, right? Like looking at cases, there was not a single case um, at either agency that I saw where you know the staff came to us with their recommendations and said, you know, all we looked at is price, and this is what we decided, right? They were always looking at you know innovation, really kind of diving into and grappling with how is it that the companies are competing in this market? Is it on innovation? Is it on quality? How do they think that they can get more customers? You know, how do they react to their competitors, um, their different moves? Um, so one of the things I did a little while ago now is, you know, I looked at all the merger complaints the DOJ had filed between January 2019 and September of 2020. Um, and again, this is, you know, just a small sliver of the cases that actually got filed. You know, the parties hadn't abandoned them, um, all of that. Uh, but not a single one of them alleged only price effects, right? They also included things like, you know, negative effects on quality or reduced innovation or R&D or, you know, different, you know, services and quality were going to go down. So I think, you know, there's there's a lot going on that we're able to do now. Um, and so that leads to, you know, you being able to be pro-consumer welfare, but also seeing antitrust cases that you think, um, where you think the agencies need to step in. Exactly. And you, you certainly were unique in that not only did you serve in Article 2 of the Constitution, the branch, but you also served in Article 4 of the Constitution. And the FTC. Uh, the let us move over. So one of the things I would, you know, when I was at the Justice Department, I'd get calls the last couple of years in particular, at least three different members of Congress. So how would you help us? We we need to uh, repeal by statute the consumer welfare standard. Uh, how would you provide technical advice to do that? What do we do? There's this thing. And then it started, you know, kind of an, uh, a process of education of what is the consumer welfare standard. Part of that was this misunderstanding that it only concerned price effects. And if, Michael, you mentioned there's a handful of presumptions that are created by statute. So there's a, two lines of questions uh, related to that, especially relevant to today's debate. First is, and let's ask the panel about this, is, what would be the types of statutory changes to, that would be consistent with the consumer welfare standard, but would be changes that would be uh, acceptable and improve enforcement of antitrust law consistent with economic understandings? Michael? So um, I think one area, and I don't, I, I think the laws evolved to the part that it's too hard to bring a case based on potential competition. And you know, this is something that's come up a lot with big tech and the concerns that they you know, buy up potential competitors and, and they'll stop it. 
And there are an awful lot of big tech mergers that has nothing to do with, but there are ones where you can suspect that that was the rationale. And my understanding is, as a practical matter, it's near impossible to bring such a case. And I think that um, should change. I think there are reasons to believe that, especially in some of the tech markets, it's possible to identify a firm that's a, a threat fairly early on. And one of the reasons is because a lot of these markets have network effects or their data economies of scale or whatever, where in order for a firm to displace an incumbent, it, they have to, typically have to have an innovation that gets the ball rolling, and then they have to have favorable consumer expectations, and then the, the thing snowballs because people say, oh, this is the, you know, this is, say, the social network I want to be on, so I'm going to join it, and I expect everybody else to. And off it goes. And it may be possible then to identify a very small number of firms that look like they have that momentum starting when, they're, when they are still very small. And I think we need to um, adjust our thinking, and presumption is probably the wrong word, but I think there needs to be a reset there so that, in fact, um, nascent or potential competition does um, Get more, get more attention. I think there's a need in terms of presumptions. I think there should be a reset to um, for the courts to be more neutral about vertical restraints. At least some of us have a sense that there's an incredibly strong presumption or prior that vertical restraints are good. That is um, leading the courts sometimes, I think, to underestimate the um, potential damage. So anyway, those are a couple where I would like to see a reset. Although, again, I would like the resets to push things towards what I would see as more neutral as opposed to, for example, in some of the big tech legislation says, well, okay, every merger is bad. I think that's a mistake. I want to be able to look at the mergers individually and say, well, this one we really are concerned about nascent competition, and now we're going to um, have a detailed analysis as opposed to moving from what I think now it's too hard to stop such a merger to just having a blanket prohibition. And, and specifically with the potential competition, now at the Justice Department in the last couple of years, we brought two cases. One was Visa's acquisition of Plaid, which you know, was not in the market. And then the other one, uh, which was litigated, uh, was the Sabre Fair Logics, both of which had elements of potential competition and certainly not the market share analysis uh, for the changes. But, but you're right, it's, it's an up, uphill uh, climb for the enforcement agencies and, and plaintiffs. But what specifically would you change to allow for that that would not have the counter effect of, uh, of some of the pending legislation? that could account for that. And my guess is the poster child for what we're talking about and some unfortunate emails and others that, that happened for the House judiciary is perhaps Instagram, Facebook's acquisition of Instagram that you know, I think the general public has been captured with. Had those two been competing with each other, maybe we would have a, a better environment. But uh, there's a lot of arguments for and against that. But when we're talking about the nascent competitor, what would be the specific change? That so let me say, I, I'll admit, rather than duck the question, I don't know what the specific change was. Well, let me use um, Facebook, Instagram as a hypothetical, because one of the things I can't stand as a testifying witness is hear people explain to me about a case they have not been involved in, and it turns out they don't know the record. So let me do this as, yeah. as hypothetical. I, mean, I think at the time that that merger occurred, had the FTC tried to block it, because they've gotten a lot of criticism for not, 
they had would have had zero chance of succeeding in court, both because of the, stand, uh, the standards of the day. So I'm not sure what the legislation would say, but I would but let me just say a little bit about what the process would be that I think I would like to see the agencies and then if it were to be litigated, the courts go through. And it would be to assess if you saw the merger. And unlike a lot of companies, I would actually look at intent. I mean, you have to be very careful reading documents, but if you see a company and the CEO and dominant shareholders say, you know, we've identified this company as a threat and we should, you know, <laughs> buy them to neutralize them, I think that should get some weight, but I think you would then want to look, are there other, you know, how strong are the other potential competitors? How big are the effects, you know, look at the type one and type two errors and ask, okay, how big a deal is it? And one of the things I would say about this, I know people here are used to the term talking about Schumpeterian competition, but something often came up with the Microsoft case, which is the idea that we have these, particularly in big tech, we have these markets with a lot of intellectual property, say network effects, all these things, importance of data, give rise to big economies of scale. So at any one moment we expect one or a handful of firms to be dominant. And the way competition takes place is new firms come along, they innovate, and they get you know, the positive feedback and scale all working in their favor, and they replace them. So you have these successive generations. Now, some people have used Schumpeterian competition as argument against antitrust enforcement, saying, look, you see a firm that looks dominant today, but they could be swept away. And so you shouldn't take the fact that they have such a big market share to mean that you know, they're entrenched. However, if you take that view, and I think there's something to it, then you also need to take the view that that little teeny firm is not inconsequential, right? Because you just told me, well, market share is the wrong way to look at things. You can be swept away by some nascent competitor. Well, that means then we should be concerned if you start buying those nascent competitors. So I think basically, all I can say at this point is you have to sort of dig in and look at the facts and the potential and for them to emerge as a competitor. And I think you also need to understand in some of these markets, it may be that you should block the merger even if there's a what seems intuitively like a fairly small probability that that firm would be the winner because we're talking about things where it may be you know, tens or hundreds of billions of dollars on the line. And so you can multiply a number like that by a small probability and you know, to anybody but somebody in the US government, that looks like a really big number when you're done. <laughs> uh, and writing statutes are hard. And that's you know, why I think Congress has shied away from writing too many antitrust statutes and you know, deferring to the development of the common law. Uh, Bilal, are any changes? Now, you ran the, the FTC's uh, policy shop, and you had to think about these. How would you improve the consumer welfare standard uh, if you had to? Well, I, I think I'd, I'd go back to a few things that I mentioned earlier, which is, uh, first, I don't think um, prescriptive uh, statutory language is useful, uh, and I think it would be hard to develop. Uh, I don't think we should switch burdens. Uh, you know, the burden should remain with the plaintiff to prove its case. I do think some direction to the courts uh, and to the agencies uh, through statutory language could and, you know, could focus on uh, a better sense of um, this type one, type two era issue. Uh, the courts have adopted type one era as sort of the standard to avoid. 
And I think it would be useful, if it, if it has to come from Congress, it would be useful for Congress to make clear that uh, the antitrust laws, you know, that, that the idea is not only to avoid false positives, but, but false negatives. Um, and it might look odd to put sort of the language of type one and type two era into a statute, but I think that's the biggest change uh, that, uh, that's the change that over time will have the biggest effect. Um, and, you know, it would in a sense force uh, balancing. Uh, and, and, and that's about the only change I would like to see. I, I think the agencies, if, if we all think there are potential competition cases that the agencies are, you know, not bringing, uh, because it's too hard to bring or win a case, uh, I'd, I'd actually like to see them bring those cases uh, and develop um, a record, uh, you know, in, in court as to why they believe a firm is a future or potential competitor. Uh, that would have an effect on competition, you know, in, in the relevant market. Uh, I think there's a, the, the, the case law from the 80s uh, I think uh, does set a relatively high bar for some potential competition cases. Uh, you know, there's a sense that the level of certainty of, of entry, uh, you know, by one of the parties to a merger must be relatively high. Uh, I think that is a problem because antitrust does not only focus on high probability events or shouldn't focus on only high probability events. Um, but I'd say the FTC has, in my reading and in my understanding of some of the cases they've brought over the last 25 years, uh, actually brought what I'd call potential competition or future competition cases um, uh, with a fairly low level of certainty uh, that you know, the, one of the parties to the, to the transaction would, would enter the market. So I, I would like to see more cases brought because we're all, I mean, I think we've all sort of said, uh, you know, the agencies ought to bring more potential competition cases or the courts ought to allow more potential competition cases and that, and that there's a hurdle to doing it. I'm, I'm not convinced of that. I think with a good story as to why someone is a, you know, effective entrant, uh, uh, the, courts, the courts can be convinced. Uh, we'll see. Uh, if that happens in some of the cases that have been filed already. But ordinary course uh, cases that, that the FTC has brought over the last 25 years and, and you know, received consents on do look a lot like um, low certainty uh, potential competition cases. And it's not only in the pharma space. Uh, to me, a great example is uh, you know, Arbitron Nielsen, right? Neither of them had a product on the market. They had arguably capabilities I mean, how could they, you know, how could anyone believe, you know, both parties were likely to enter? You know, that, that was a case of very low probability. Um, the other thing I'd like to see the agencies do uh, is more, uh, allege more technology markets. Uh, I found in the last 25 years three FTC cases that allege technology markets in, um, in, uh, in mergers. Uh, two during uh, my time with Tim Muris, one, I think, uh, under Petofsky. Uh, I think that's an area that's sort of underdeveloped. 
uh, particularly as we talk about the technology space. Somebody want to give some thought to whether technology markets, alleging technology markets and harm to technology markets makes, makes some sense there. Uh, and I would uh, make some changes to the Hart-Scott rules and potentially the um, HSR statute, uh, but particularly the rules, so that transactions that involve uh, small uh, but growing firms, whether US-based or international, uh, are captured through the reporting process uh, rather than um, exempted either by statutory language or by Hart-Scott rule. Uh, some of that comes out of our work in OPP on the 6B study, the evaluation of um, what I'll call, well, what were non-reportable acquisitions by you know, five, five large technology companies. Uh, those, those changes uh, and, and the bringing of more cases, I think are you know, more important than a specific prescriptive language uh, uh, in the statute. I, I, I do think a direction from Congress about balancing and you know, not just being concerned about type one era uh, should be there. I mean, the Supreme Court has said we're focused on type one era. There is no you know, basis for that. Uh, any good economist will tell you we minimize the sum of the errors, type one and type two, and maybe maybe the Supreme Court needs to hear that from Congress. But that's about the only change I would make at the statutory level. It, it seemed like Judge Bork was okay. It was one of his criticism of the past antitrust uh, doctrine was the fact that the court was making things up without, <laughs> as he wrote, without compulsion of statute or really explaining it. So if Congress, you know, compelled a certain kinds of analysis, uh, I think that would be consistent not only with his philosophy, but that's an appropriate policy-making body. But it seems like you would like to see it develop organically. Uh, I have no idea, having uh, been the chief counsel of the Senate Judiciary Committee, how you would write a statute that would say, do this balancing by the court. But that's the, part, that's the hard part. It's, as Jack Valenny famously said, you can tell a man to go to hell, Getting him there is a whole different story. It's hard. Actually, actually <laughs> you're asking about spe specifics, and I didn't give this example before because I thought maybe it was reviewed too much as a technical point. But I do think this is something you could put in the statute, which is to reaffirm that um, you could establish a firm has market power by both direct and indirect means. And that market definition, I think the statute should say it's never a never required that you absolutely have to do formal market definition. And in fact, you, if you can establish um, market power or the effects through direct evidence, that, that should be good enough. And that would be going to get directly against my understanding of um, part of the American Express opinion of the Ohio, where they said that vertical practices that you have to define relevant markets. I think there's no support for that, certainly in economics. If by relevant markets you mean what I believe the court meant, which is you, you define the, this concept that has this stark zero one boundary, I of course as economists believe you need to understand the you know the boundaries of competition and you know how competition functions. But it's my experience certainly has been that the formal process of market definition and trying to divide these bright line boundaries where they clearly often do not exist is becoming more of an obstacle to good analysis and judicial um, decision making than um, a tool. Talk about bad cases making terrible law. 
and, and that was one. But, you know, at least uh, one other uh, point I wanted to ask about is we've been talking about, you know, antitrust laws specifically advocated being continued to be developed without formalistic rules and prescriptions um, and letting the courts decide this. We're in a stage where the Supreme Court is a textualist and originalist court. And, and again, largely from yet another influence of Judge Bork and his originalism and having uh, certain principles. But Justice Kagan announced, you know, we're now all textualists. Uh, we have a new configuration of the Supreme Court um, that hasn't had as many uh, antitrust cases. They've had, you know, the American Express, but at the NCAA recently. Uh, if they're going to be textualists from the text of the Sherman and the Clayton Act, what does this mean as new cases go up to the Supreme Court? What are we looking at? Are we looking at per se rules for Section 2? I mean, that certainly could be derived from the text if the court really wanted to. Cases like Philadelphia National Bank in the merger world, you have certain presumptions that have been kind of made out of whole cloth. Uh, are those in danger, the next merger case that the Supreme Court takes? It certainly was the type of stuff that kept me up at night at the antitrust division. But tell me what you think uh, the court would do currently this, uh, this makeup of the court if we were to predict. And how do you address the consumer welfare standard um, with a textualist, originalist court and a statute that's two sentences? Yeah, yeah. So I think that's, you know, again, a really interesting question. And I think why, you know, time and time again in the antitrust discussion, we, you know, see folks coming back to, OK, well, what's in the legislative history? Because, again, there's there's so little that's actually in the statute for you to go off of. And I think it was I don't have the data in front of me, but pretty early on in the history of the antitrust law and the Sherman Act in particular, there was, you know, a report, government report saying, you know, already the legislative history has been exhausted. There's all of these arguments already being made. And that was, again, even before the antitrust paradox, before a lot of the papers recently that have been written saying, you know, trying, especially from the neo-Brandesian side, right, trying to argue why um, Judge Bork got it wrong on the legislative history and it really says all of these other things. It's it's something that keeps cropping up. And I think at the end of the day, though, again, it's not very informative one way or the other, as you can see from, you know, the flip-flopping back and forth and, you know, all of this throughout throughout the, you know, over a century now, right, is that it's not giving us a lot of information. And, you know, to kind of go back to what, you know, we talked about earlier, I think what has been a lot more informative and helpful is actually looking at the case law, looking at the cases on the ground and seeing seeing how those have developed over time. Um, and I kind of like to, you know, pick up on a point that, you know, Bilal was making in terms of, you know, actually getting more cases in front of the courts, I think is important, um, you know, because we saw the courts had this really important role in helping get antitrust to where we are today, where, you know, it's certainly not perfect, um, but I think, you know, it's much less at war with itself um, by any by any definition than it was in the middle of the um, 20th century. 
But that can only the courts can only play that important role if they're actually seeing the cases in the first place. And Megan, to kind of your point, um, you know, it's one of those would love to see the Supreme Court get a merger case and actually be deciding one of those that hasn't happened in in several decades. So it would be, I think, fascinating to see what they would decide to do there and what they would want to do with PNB. I expect um, even being textualists, you know, there being so little to go on that there would be a lot more focus on, you know, Okay, what is the consumer welfare standard? What does it look like today? And is there a basis for this particular presumption that's in front of us now? So I think there would certainly be a lot of, um, you know, questioning what the current law is and how best to implement it. But I don't know that um, the textualist arguments do a lot of work for you in those cases. It's hard bringing cases, as you know. It's hard being a plaintiff in antitrust cases, Justice. Uh, Gorsuch described this as during confirmation hearing, and you're a defendant, there's multiple ways to knock out a case to do that. And the same thing at the two antitrust agencies. And as you observed earlier, there's a lot of other reasons why you don't go to court. You know, you can't just look at statistics of cases brought, partly because parties abandon cases. They've got other pressures. They look at where else they could deploy their resources and capital and other acquisition. And so there's a lot of reasons why agencies do not, cannot, and may not have the opportunities to test some of these theories um, from an academic standpoint, because uh, there's always uh, a settlement discussion or abandonment or some other form. Um, so it's, it's hard to see those types of cases develop and the, and the amount of resources that merging parties are willing to, to give. So I'm just, I was a big advocate of Congress, at a minimum, codifying certain presumptions that has worked to provide predictability for both enforcement and merging parties. At a minimum, that's some things that they could do without really screwing up uh, future enforcement and making it more confusing. Yeah. But we'll see if that ever happens. You know, Macon, I want to I want to disagree with that a little bit in mm -hmm. terms of well, at least the point about it's difficult to bring cases. You know. Difficult uh, and, to bring and, cases that could win. Sure. So, so yeah, yeah, fair enough. So, look, I'm I'm a, I'm going to talk about stuff I know about, yeah. uh, and and I don't mean to, you know, sort of exclude others' uh, initiatives. Twenty years ago, when I was at the commission, when when Tim Muris was chairman, you know, the agencies had lost, you know, seven, eight hospital merger cases in a row. Uh, DOJ appeared to have gotten out of the hospital merger challenge you know, business, uh, and the, uh, the commission started, you know, a program to find consummated hospital mergers uh, to try in-house through the administrative process uh, to develop a record as to how hospital mergers ought to be reviewed. Uh, that, I think, you know, took, took some time, but has been largely successful. Uh, I don't see why the commission cannot bring uh, potential competition cases in-house over the current and maybe the next administration and try to develop a doctrine of potential competition through, you know, its own processes and eventually the appellate process that um, further develops the law in a way that might uh, be sensible and can withstand appellate challenge. There are a series of cases from the 80s, potential competition cases, uh, where the standard, you know, for entry, in a sense, likelihood of entry is quite high. Uh, if the agency or agencies believe these, that standard is too high, 
the commission, as a adjudicatory body, is in the position to try to convince an appellate court, you know, through a commission opinion, that those standards are too high. And, and they ought to do it rather than asking uh, Congress, in my view, to change presumptions when, in fact, the cases the agencies bring, they don't often lose, right? Uh, so it's easy to say we don't bring cases because, you know, the burden's too high, the risk is too high, that we're wasting resources on losers. But I think that's, in some sense, maybe in a large sense, a cop-out. Um, I, I have some questions about, you know, sort of the commission structure generally. Uh, uh, you know, not, not this administration or some other administration, just generally. But um, they do have the opinion to they do have the option to bring these cases in-house and try to develop the law and, and you know, bring that, eventually sort of bring that to an appellate court, uh, and they ought to do it, and, and they're not. I mean, it is, there is a reason, I think, that um, the Facebook case was filed in district court, uh, but, you know, it was a con those focused on consummated mergers uh, and conduct that I think the commission lost uh, lost an alternative uh, to to sort of develop a, a treatment there how the law should develop uh, by by not bringing in house and and using their own uh, I'll call it expertise uh, to to move to move the law forward. Yeah, and that, and that don't mean they don't bring cases only because they're hard. Of course, they're hard. Yeah. It is that uh, a lot of times. Other parties have ideas. They abandon the case. Oh, yeah. They'd be willing to give a tax. Now, I think what you said highlights one of the biggest issues that I have with the structure of an FTC, where it's to develop the law. If the law is to be, de I mean, they're either bound by the law or they're not. It is not, I don't believe, the function of the FTC. Maybe I got to go read Article 4 of the Constitution again, but maybe they do have that legislative power. It's really up to Congress to do that and to tell them what it is and um, to have two different standards, which they do. I mean, you could, a lot of times, you, you literally flip a coin and a merger goes to the FTC or the DOJ. And whether or not you can go to court or go to the FTC in the process that Bilal's talking about is going to your administrative law judge uh, after the commission has authorized that case you go, you know, one of the benefits is you go within eight months, you try your case, and then lo and behold, if the commission loses, guess who it gets appealed to? The commission. The commission itself that authorized it gets to hear the appeal of that case. And then it goes out, you know, after they write an opinion and it, it goes out to a court of appeals in that process. There's just something fundamentally from a due process standpoint seems to be uh, 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 Problematic. Now, it could provide for, you know, these academic experimentations, but at, at, at what cost? And who is the appropriate body to develop that law? If there is a good argument to make that law, and an expert agency like the FTC thinks so, and the standard for potential competition is too high, make the argument to the policymakers, to Congress, and change that law uh, in, a, in, a, in a process that, that we have. Uh, we certainly wouldn't stand it if a foreign country was doing some of these things, but I uh, digress. I'm no longer in a position where I can express those types of uh, uh, opinions with any real effect. Now, can we, uh, are there any questions? Uh, you got it. 
illustrious panel with lots of experience here. If, you, if somebody has a question to ask about the direction of antitrust law or the, or the, or, uh, the evolution of the consumer welfare standard, um, we can ask them. Uh, if not, Elise, would you, do you have a comment or a question for me to call? Oh, we do have a question. Alden. Uh, very, very interesting discussion. One, one question about uh, acquisition of small potential entrants, potential future competitors. So I have one question about factoring in the entrant uh, in merger analysis, acquisitions of small uh, competitors. How does one take into account the effects on, on capital markets? In particular, since often we're talking about innovation, holders of intellectual property, that you might say, well, we need a lower probability that this uh, Instagram or some other firm is going to become uh, a competitor. But what if uh, a heightened effort to block such acquisitions diminishes incentives for uh, venture capital to support the development of intellectual property by small firms that are uh, growing precisely with the goal of being acquired. So uh, that adds an additional level of complexity, complexity, but isn't that a serious issue that you'd have to confront if you started bringing a larger number of, of, of potential competition mergers involving small entrants? So, I see, so I think it is a um, potential concern, but I also, and that's why, again, I wouldn't do a flat ban. I would look case by case. But I think it's also important to point out that there's a simple model everybody has in mind when they talk about the effects of, you know, what's called entry for buyout or the effects of allowing these mergers on incentives, which is either you invest in entering or you don't. And then it's certainly right that if you take away merger as a possible exit strategy, it lowers your incentives to invest. However, real world is much more complicated than that, and you choose a multi-dimensional entry strategy. And it may well be that if you lose the option of merger for buyout, where you were going to become a, you know, you were going to be threatened to become a competitor, now you get bought out. In that world, you may actually invest more aggressively when the option is taken away from you, because instead, I mean, think about it. You say, look, I just do it again, a caricature of it. If I know I'm going to just be bought up, I say, let me just do enough. Let me invest enough so that I can be a pain and I can get you know, somebody to write a check to me for several billion dollars. Whereas you say, well, that's actually not an option. You're going to actually have to innovate to compete. You may push yourself much harder. So it's, it's just not true as a general matter of economic logic that limiting entry for buyout will necessarily reduce investment incentives for certain types of investments that inc could increase them. But that said, I don't want to diminish it. I think there is a real concern. It's clear a lot of firms are coming up with in innovations that they think there's no chance they would ever displace the incumbents. They're not trying to. They're trying to come up with complementary products or pieces of IP. And this is really, the, uh, you know, I think an, often an efficient way of a license agreement or selling. And so I think we do have to be careful about that. Yeah, and I think um, 
that's kind of reflected in at least some of the cases we've seen the agencies bring so far and that what they're looking at is, you know, ways to identify, okay, why this particular nascent competitor was going to have some sort of impact on the market. So in the Microsoft case, right, the court is looking at Netscape um, and they really say it's, you know, kind of the only one in that space, the only one who's doing these kinds of things. And I think the, the FTC's argument in the Illumina Grill case that's going on now followed a similar vein. Um, so they're really looking at, it's not a space, um, you know, let's say with, uh, food delivery apps, right, where there's been a ton of capital investment and, you know, just a ton of different competitors in this space right now. They they focus so far on, you know, cases where um, there's, you know, one particular competitor who is uniquely situated to challenge um, the status quo and, and the competitors. So I think that's um, factoring into what they've been doing already um, is, you know, what the effects on the capital market are. Right. I'd ask a question all then to you, which is, is it, is it so clear that antitrust ought to take that factor into account? Why is that not sort of a broadening of uh, sort of the purpose of antitrust? Uh, you know, it, wh why is that not a policy argument similar to, you know, we ought to take um, income and, and wealth effects in, into account? Uh, I'm not sure it's the same, uh, but it, but it, I, I, because I agree with your point generally, but I'm just sort of wondering why it's an antitrust point. But doesn't that come to, I mean, the consumer welfare standard actually can be an incredibly expansive um, standard, and it seems to be, it does come, because I take it, the reason you're asking is you're saying, or the way you would put it in the framework, put words in your mouth, um, obviously you can speak for yourself, but as you say, well, if it's, if by, um, say, banning these acquisitions, we end up leading to less investment in venture capital, less innovation. Ultimately, that's going to be worse for consumers in these markets. Well, I agree that makes sense, you know, not banning them. But I, I just wonder how you take account of that case by case. But I, but I think that comes to something. I actually wanted to comment on your point about the balancing, which I agree with completely in principle. But the courts have been really reluctant. You know, there's empirical work showing that in Section 2 cases, essentially no court ever admits to having done balancing. But the opinions all say is one side was right and the other side had nothing. <laughs> and it's not that anyone, I think, believes that, you know, some cases that may be true, but I think, and probably rightfully so, the, you know, the judges are really worried about being second-guessed and it's really hard to know how to, to do the balancing. And I, I think it is, it's a, a huge um, problem we're going to face. But I think it is also something that's inherent in the consumer welfare standard. It can actually be very broad and very vague. You know, one of the attacks on the socio-political goals is say, well, it's, you've got all these goals and they require all these trade-offs. And, and Robert Bork himself said, well, look, that's actually true. You do have trade-offs within the consumer welfare standard. It's just he, he thought that they were narrower and, and you could deal with them in a, a more I guess rigorous or consistent way, but you know we shouldn't forget though that, that applying the consumer welfare standard actually can be extremely difficult in practice. Thank you so much, uh, Stokes Nielsen from Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, I represent artists in the entertainment field, and I found some similarities in Bork's book with the entertainment industry. I was hoping to ask you guys a question to get your thoughts on it. Um, American broadcast radio as it relates to major airplay for music artists is 95% controlled by three major entertainment companies which are foreign based companies. 
what are the remedies that American-based entertainment companies have for fair play as it relates to getting their signed artists equal chances for airplay on American radio? Can Congress or the DOJ apply some sort of assistance to American-based entertainment companies to have equal access to American broadcast radio, especially since it is controlled by the FCC? At least you have a comment. Oh, it looks like Bilal wanted to say. No, no, I was going to say I have no comments on that. I, 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 uh, well, as you know, uh, you know, I think specifically what you're dealing with is the public performance rights of artists that is subject to DOJ consent decrees for about 80 years. Uh, the DOJ did an extensive review of that. We kind of uh, explained that in a statement that I gave in the last weeks of the last ad administration about taking a look at that. There's been law that has developed those consent decrees uh, remain in play with respect to public performance rights. Of course, sync rights and other you know, publishing rights, others are uh, outside of that and there's a market for that that still uh, remains. But artists uh, had come to the division as well as some of the public performance rights organizations uh, to not terminate uh, those consent decrees, um, but it's a it's it's a challenge. Now, there's also sound recording rights. This is if you know, God forbid, I sang you know Elton John's written song, that would be terrible. But I would have no rights in the underlying song. But I would have a right in my sound recording of my uh, rendition of that. Uh, that's one where artists get zero money from uh, from broadcasters. You get money from digital, but you get no money from broadcasters. Congress has introduced legislation year after year with more than 200 co-sponsors. It's never been passed into law. I'll leave it to you to, to determine why that, ha that is the case. But that is an, uh, an area which is interesting because you have a, a disparity in the treatment of recording artists as opposed to songwriters. Um, and publishers uh, in, in the treatment of that and, and remuneration of, the, of those intellectual properties. Any other questions? Uh, Sir? Not sure if it's on. Okay, great. Thanks very much. Um, just a quick maybe trip down memory lane for any of the panelists who would care to, to comment on this, but I'm curious if you think the consumer welfare standard was ever applied in the early Sherman Act era, even if not so denominated. And I realize how fraught consumer welfare stand, or how, how fraught uh, counterfactuals are, historical counterfactuals, but if, uh, if it had been applied with respect to the labor market, might it have been a uh, might it have had an, an effect on the formation of labor unions uh, as countervailing mon mon monopolies or oligopolies? Uh, great and interesting question. Uh, a subject of the book, I think, something that's addressed in uh, uh, the book Titan uh, about John D. Rockefeller by Chernow, uh, which is an interesting read and t discusses about uh, labor unions and organization uh, around that. So. Uh, but I really don't have a comment about it uh, other than point out uh, what a wonderful book that is that addresses a little bit of that. Any? Well, I'll take a stab at sort of the first part of the question. Uh, look, I, it, it's hard to find the phrase consumer welfare uh, in Supreme Court opinions, particularly in early Supreme Court opinions. 
Uh, I think uh, an example, though, of uh, consumer welfare opinion, you know, was was sort of the development of the rule of reason by then Judge Taft in Addison Pipe. Uh, he doesn't use that language, but I think when you move away from, you know, the the statutory language of um, you know prohibitions on restraints of trade to 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 turn it into prohibitions on unreasonable restraints of trade, you're applying, you know, some underlying uh, principles consistent with what's in the consumer welfare standard. Um, uh, the second part of your question about, you know, labor unions, um, it is hard to sort of think about how that uh, might have developed, uh, you know, in the early years, but of course, Congress did change the law, I guess, in the 30s that, that gave the labor unions protection. Uh, they've had that protection now for a long enough time. I think, uh, I think if they were going to develop into, you know, sort of counter, sort of a countervailing uh, institution against uh, large firms, that either would have happened already or it happened and then, um, uh, you know, has, has sort of dissipated for reasons not related to antitrust. That's an attempt at answering the question. Yeah, yeah, I think it's it's an interesting question and you don't really see that phrase consumer welfare standard, I think in the early cases, I think that's right. Um, what you do see early on though is, you know, the court acknowledging, you know, why we have kind of the free market system we have today, right? Like why we think competition is good. So you get some glimpses of you know, what the consumer welfare standard is and why today we think it's important, right? Is, you know, we think it's competition between companies is forcing them to fight for consumers and that that benefits consumers in all sorts of ways. Um, so you get some discussion of it early on, but it's really, oh, I think, very heavily overshadowed by a lot of the socio-political goals that come in. And when the court's actually making their decision, they're relying in the earlier cases much more heavily on, well, you know, we think this is gonna negatively affect smaller companies or, you know, individuals than on the actual consumer but you can see early on some some glimmers of what comes later. And I'd love to hear from Professor Katz because I believe the actual terminology started getting into the parlance through the Chicago School and the work of Aaron Director and Easterbrook and, and, uh, and that crowd around that time. But I don't know if it was in the judicial nomenclature until, until later on. And now we have, I think, by last count, over 100 courts of appeals cases, and I believe 19 Supreme Court cases that cite antitrust paradox and, you know, in some form, the consumer welfare standard. Yeah, but on the, I would agree with Elise, and I think actually even in some of the early language of talking about the socio-political goals in some ways are, um, maybe because it's shadows there or something, are actually making reference to the consumer welfare standard in the sense that it's sort of like, well, there was this, but it also would hurt um, small businesses. And, it, and the fact that they're doing it as sort of a but, I think, is because they're saying, well, yeah, it would, they're not using that language, but they're saying it would benefit consumers. But now let's bring in the socio-political goals on top. So I, I do agree that it, it, was, it was one of the ones that seemed like it was there early on, although, again, it didn't have the primacy that it does today. Well, thank you. Um, with that, like Cinderella, our time is up. We could uh, give a round of applause for our three distinguished panelists.
it was my privilege to moderate this, and uh, uh, thank you, and I think it's time for lunch.